You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I'm going to read this morning from Genesis uh, chapter 27 and from verse 41. I don't have a page number for the church Bibles, uh, but a clue is it's the very first book in the Bible, so you shouldn't have difficulty uh, finding that. Uh, Genesis 27 and from the 41st verse... We are breaking into the the story of uh, Jacob. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her oldest uh, son Esau had said, She sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram. To the house of your mother's father, Bethuel, take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May the Lord Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream 
in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are now lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought... Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food uh, to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then... The Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Amen. Now, in Scripture, God reveals himself in a variety of ways. He discloses himself Uh, in history, through his dealings with the nation of Israel, but also in the personal histories of individuals like the life of Jacob that we've just read uh, together. And I want to suggest to you this morning as we look at this passage that God's self-disclosure to Jacob can uh, be helpfully understood as we see it Uh, as it were, supported by two bookends. And the first of these uh, might describe uh, the anatomy of Jacob's failure, while the second bookend would describe the variety of responses that Jacob made to God's revelation, and of course, in the middle supported by these bookends, is the glorious and the gracious revelation of God uh, to Jacob. Uh, I want to begin, however, by asking you uh, to picture Jacob sleeping fitfully alone in the desert some 50 or so miles uh, from home and with 450 miles of his journey still ahead of him. He's traveling to a country that he didn't know. There he would seek 
sanctuary with relatives that he had never met. He fears the pursuit of his brother Esau, who is anxious to take his life. And we have said nothing of the dangers he might meet on the way, dangers from robbers, dangers from wild animals, and so on. And I suppose if Jacob were to engage in some kind of self-analysis, as many do, I suppose, as they uh, head off for sleep, he might have been asking, how did my life get into this mess? This, this wasn't the way things were meant to work out. This isn't the, the realization of the dream that I had for my life. How did I get into this state of affairs? Uh, and I want to suggest to you this morning that we can identify three factors that contribute to what we've called the anatomy of failure. And the first of these is to recognize that Jacob came from a dysfunctional family. Each parent had their own agenda, their own favorite child. Jacob was a mummy's boy. He was tied to her apron strings. There he honed his culinary skills and perfected his needlepoint. In contrast, Esau, his older brother, loved the outdoor life. Hunting wild game was his passion. And as far as his father was concerned, he was a man's man. And if anyone deserved to be entrusted with the covenant blessings of God, surely it was Esau and not Jacob, despite the fact that God had made it clear at birth that the younger would be served by the older brother. He came from a dysfunctional family. Imagine the tensions that existed there in that household. Uh, no cohesion in the family home. I imagine that were he to visit a psychiatrist, he would have laid him down on his couch, tell me your story, and as that story was unpacked, the psychiatrist would say, well, it's clear to me that the measure in is due to your father and, and to your mother as well. You know, don't take the burden of blame upon yourself. We want to, to, to blame others. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that some here may have come from dysfunctional families. And I don't for a moment want to try and minimize the tremendous trauma that that can introduce into our personal development. But, and this is, I believe, an important but, it does not excuse our personal accountability for our behavior. Oh, it's a factor in shaping our lives but it doesn't excuse our personal accountability for our behavior. Uh, we, we daren't 
be blinded by today's culture that constantly seems to be encouraging us to blame others and excuse ourselves whenever we manage to get our lives into a mess. Jacob came from a dysfunctional family. Secondly, Jacob was a poor student of history. Calvin writes, histories are a true school for learning how to order our lives. Uh, Winston Churchill is attributed uh, with saying, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, I want to suggest that uh, Jacob was a poor pupil of history. You see, he knew that his grandfather Abraham had also faced trust issues with God. You will remember that God had promised Abraham a a male heir, uh, but then Sarah's biological clock stopped ticking. And Abraham reasoned something like this, poor God, he needs my help to keep his promise. And so he fathered a child through Hagar, his wife's maid. And as a result of that, God not, on, God not only distanced himself from Abraham for a period of some 13 years, but the seeds of strife were introduced to his family life after Ishmael, Hagar's uh, child, was born. Surely Jacob should have learned from that, the lesson of history. Abram had tried to help God out, tried to help God to fulfill his promise and see what had happened. But perhaps like many today, Jacob argued, well, that was his situation. Mine is different. Isn't that often the case when when parents or maybe grandparents decide that they're going to share from their wealth of experience, lest we make the same mistakes they made. Uh, And they share their stories with us. But we kind of reason, ah, that was okay for those old fogies. But our situation is different. We refuse to learn the lessons of history. We dismiss them. I find it interesting that the prophets in the Old Testament constantly admonish Israel at a national level. In the way that the, in the book of Proverbs, we find individuals are admonished at a personal level to learn the lessons of history, to draw from the wisdom of the past, to wisen up, if you like. But as with Jacob, the vast early warning system of history is disregarded. Dysfunctional family, poor history student. Thirdly, consider Jacob's own character. You will remember that at birth he emerged from his mother's womb clinging uh, to the heel of his brother's ankle. Sorry, to his brother's ankle. 
uh, and with good reason. Uh, as a result of that, he was named Jacob, which means one who grasps, one who clings on to. Uh, simply put, Jacob trusted in Jacob to get things done. That was the kind of man that he was. Deception and trickery were the tools of his trade. And these, you will remember, he secured to, uh, secu- he, se- he employed to secure God's blessing. Much more than the family silver, you see, was at stake. There was a land to be inherited, a land of promise. To say nothing of the the global blessing that the promises made to Abraham had in view. All the nations blessed. This was more than the family silver. This was a big deal and Jacob embarked on a two-stage strategy to secure it. First, he tricked Esau into selling his birthright. That cost him a plate of soup. Secondly, he deceived his blind and aging father in order to gain the promised blessing of God. And underpinning this twofold strategy, you see, there was the deep seated conviction that God's promise is a paper promise. God's promise is a paper promise. God needs help. And so Jacob trusted Jacob to seize the promised blessing for himself. And Jacob was no different from so many today who, uh, with regard to God's salvation or God's blessing, have decided they really need to help God out in some way. God needs our help. Now, I think it unlikely that Jacob engaged in uh, too much self-analysis, nor do I think he would have thanked you for observations that you may be entitled the anatomy of failure But despite that, as he lay down to sleep that night, I suspect he was fearful, discouraged, confused, and disappointed. Things had not worked out as he believed they ought or expected. He had messed up big time. And it's into that situation, into that situation that God chose to reveal himself to Jacob. When he hit rock bottom, God chose that time to make himself known. And that's something God does, is it not? Again and again and again. First, I want you to notice that God drew near to Jacob in a dream. Now, concerning this method of encounter, uh, John Bunyan, who knew a thing or two about dreams, comments, Our heart oft times wakes when we sleep, and God can speak to that either by words, 
proverbs by signs and similitudes as well as if one was awake. Why the dream? What then the significance of the the symbolism of this dream, of the, the staircase of a ladder with angels ascending and descending, with God standing at the top of the staircase? Well, again, let me suggest that it addresses any growing apprehension Jacob's heart may have had regarding his sinful behavior. Have I cut myself off from God? Have I gone too too far? Have I crossed a boundary? Am I beyond the pale? How many people think that? Beyond the pale of God's help and intervention. But you see, this staircase dream booms out Jacob, you're not cut off. Not only is God not remote, he's actually nearer than you think. I wonder if that's a word for someone this morning. God is not remote. He's nearer than you actually think as you sit here in church this morning. The staircase with the angels ascending and descending confirms that God is accessible and accessible to failures just like Jacob. No matter your past sin, no matter your failure, God is not inaccessible. He will not refuse to take your calls. Think on that. Secondly, God does more than provide Jacob with a piece of therapeutic visual imagery. Uh, Tailor-made, and we want to underline that, tailor-made revelation also comes in the words that God speaks. Now, You and I might expect words of censure reprimanding Jacob for his sinful past. Jacob, you've blown it, you idiot. How could you have done what you've done? That's a reasonable expectation, is it not? But instead of that, God speaks into this situation Words of covenant promise. And God is doing more than simply republishing the covenant promises made to Abraham. For these promises, I want you to notice the way in which they also address Jacob's immediate need. In what way? Well, look at the reference to the land that is promised in verse 13. And think of this, Jacob was conscious of leaving the land of promise. And one of the questions surely going through his mind was, will I ever see this land again? Will I see the land again? And God says, it's yours. And it belongs to your descendants. Uh, This is, you can take my word on it. Take it to the bank. I've promised 
In verse 14, God speaks of nationhood. That's part of the Abrahamic promise, is it not? But think back on Jacob's strife with his brother Esau. The effect of that was actually to tear Abraham's family apart. He's not been engaging in the building up, but in the tearing down of the family line of Abraham. And into that situation, God says, ah, but there, yeah, there will be a nation. A significant nation. And it will stand the test of time. And then also in verse 14, all the nations will be blessed through Jacob's line. Now, I'm sure too at this point, Jacob may well have viewed his life as a liability rather than a blessing. My track record so far is actually pretty poor. And God says, Jacob, through you and through your line, the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Savior of the world will come through a twister. Think of it. One who had up until this point in time lived through deceit and trickery and guile. The savior of the world is coming through you, Jacob. And then finally, God's promises conclude in verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you. Wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What an amazing promise is. God binds himself to Jacob in not not a breakable paper chain, but with the unbreakable promise of his presence and protection and blessing. Can anything bring greater assurance than that? That's what God speaks into this situation. But thirdly, notice the form of the language in God's self-disclosure. The glorious character of God and his covenant becomes apparent. Look at the personal pronoun repeated in verses 13 through 15. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, had God's dealings followed the formula, I will, if you will, then a fault line of gigantic proportions would have been introduced because human performance is unreliable and failure would have been inevitable. But God noticed takes takes upon his own shoulders all of the responsibility for his covenant promises. This is why the covenant promises of God should inspire confidence amongst us. Covenants of grace are waterfalls of blessing that flow from the heart of God to the need of man. Grasping that is 
all important, not least because it deflates pride and it energizes worship. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Body of Divinity, writes these wonderful words. Grace is the first link in the chain of blessedness. And he who has a grasp of the first link of the chain grasps the whole chain. Do you see the point? Grace is the first link in the chain of blessedness. And he who has a grasp of the first link has a grasp of the whole chain. Essentially, the thing we really need to lay hold of as far as the blessing of God is concerned is that it is something that flows from his grace. There is no other source. Hang on to this. And I want to suggest to you that when that truth grips our hearts for the very first time, it cannot but fail to have a transforming effect upon us. But it's going to take Jacob about another 20 years before he wholly grasps that link. He grasps something of God's grace. And he does respond to this revelation. God reveals himself in order that we respond to what he has revealed. How then did Jacob respond? In three ways. It's very helpful for preachers, you'll notice that, but he responds in three ways. First of all, Jacob is overwhelmed by a sense of awe and reverential fear. Verses 16 to 17. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You see, the God he'd refused to trust, the God he'd grieved by his duplicity, has now drawn near, invaded his life, made himself known. And this grace encounter bowls Jacob over. Bunyan again writes, There is nothing in heaven or earth that can so awe the heart of a man as the grace of God. Tis this which makes a man fear. Tis this that makes a man tremble. Tis that which makes a man bow and bend and break in pieces. Years ago, I found myself seated across from a man at a funeral tea, and in the course of conversation, he described the Jacob-like encounter that he had had with God. But he might as well have been describing how he met Mickey Mouse in Disneyland. There was no sense of awe or wonder in his description. And so I pressed him a bit further and asked, how did this encounter with God transform your life? What changes did it make? Oh, he said, none. None whatsoever. Well, whatever his experience may have been, he certainly did not have a Jacob-like encounter with God. Transformation of life will always be the mark of a genuine 
encounter with God. Of course, we don't require a dream to experience awe at God's revelation of himself. I wonder if you remember how Nathaniel's skepticism was replaced by wonder and even awe when Jesus told him that prior to their immediate encounter, he had seen him sitting under a fig tree. Oh, that, that had a wow factor as far as Nathaniel had, was concerned. And Jesus responds to that. Uh, he almost says, you ain't seen nothing yet, but he doesn't. But that's what's implied here. Jesus goes on uh, to say to him, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God uh, ascending and descending in the Son of Man. Jesus is alluding to Jacob's dream. And I believe Jesus is saying something like this. I have become the ladder that bridges the gap from earth to heaven. And it's this that should truly awe the heart of man as you recognize the grace of God in its construction. To see why I'm here, to see what I've come to do, that should have the real awe, wow factor as far as you're concerned. Lloyd-Jones alludes to this passage uh, in a sermon and he says this, Many have constructed their ladders with rung after rung of good thoughts and noble actions and pious hopes and good deeds. But the highest rung was still infinitely short of the heavenly goal. They had exhausted all their efforts and expended all their reserves. They looked down in despair and crashed to the ground. Then... Suddenly they, like Jacob of old, became conscious of the fact that there was a ladder hanging in front of them, not erected from earth but suspended from heaven, there waiting for them, constructed without their knowledge, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's the wonder of the cross. And all that God has done through the cross that should awe our hearts. We should stagger in wonder at this reality. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jacob lays down a memory marker. This is the point of erecting the pillar in verse 18. Uh, In the Old Testament, pillars are uh, erected as memorial cairns to mark God's miraculous provision or perhaps his help in the defeat of an enemy. But here, Jacob wants to mark the place where God had revealed himself to him. This was an encounter not to be forgotten. Again and again in Scripture, the people of God are encouraged to aid their remembrance of significant saving events, marking them in particular ways. Uh, One thinks perhaps of the Passover in the Old Testament or the Lord's Supper in the New. Our memories are unreliable. And believe me, it's not just an old age thing. And so memory markers serve as invaluable assets to our memory. Let me try and illustrate that for you. 
a young man, a Sunday school leader, had wandered far from God. And one day he was sorting through his books and he came across a journal that he'd written years previously. And in it he had recorded God's dealings with him. And as he read through the pages of his journal, his heart melted as memories of that former blessedness flooded into his consciousness. And that proved to be a turning point in his spiritual pilgrimage, a memory marker. And he comes upon it and it impacts on his life afresh. Don't belittle the value of memory cairns in all their variety of forms, for they can serve greatly in reminding us of God's gracious dealings. Thirdly and finally, Jacob responds with a word of commitment. He makes a vow in verses 20 and 21. However, as we examine the language of this vow, we will see that it takes the form of a bargain. He's saying to God, if you will, then I will. If you get it right, I'll respond. If you keep your end of the bargain, I will do the same. Now, this... Call this commitment, yes, but it lacks real submission. That's going to take another 20 years. But it is commitment of a fashion. For the present, he is linking his performance to God's blessing. As if he could pay God for blessing. Bless me, and as a result of that, I'll pay you. I'll give you my heart's allegiance. Uh, Now, that's no new response to God, this bargain response. Think of the foxhole conversions in wartime. Oh, God, get me safely home, and I'll give my life uh, to you. Or think of others in critical illness who've prayed, heal me, Lord, and I'll give my life to you. Or those in situations of great danger. John Newton, shipwrecked, floating in the sea, crying out to God, if you, if you save me from this danger, then uh, I'm yours. Uh, interestingly, it didn't take John Newton 20 years to write the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, he got it far quicker than Jacob did. You don't bargain with God. You simply submit to the grace of God that he has lavished uh, upon your life. But those who seek to bargain with God betray an ignorance of the fact that deliverance flows from grace. And an appropriate response to grace is that of wholehearted submission. But you know what the truly amazing thing about this response is God doesn't say you've failed theology 101, go back to the textbooks and we'll sit this wee exam again and if you get it right 
then I'll continue to work in your life. God actually, despite the deficiencies in his theology and his understanding, works with Jacob and in Jacob's life, knowing it's going to take 20 years before the penny drops. And that's true for you and I. We don't need to score 100% in our theological understanding before God says, well, well, maybe now we can make a start together. Now that you've got it right, now that you've dotted the I's and uh, crossed the T's, we can make a start. With so much deficiency in our understanding, God will say, I see enough. I see enough to begin with you. I see the longings of your heart. I see the repentance from your sin, the sorrow for your failure. Uh, We can move on from there. We can move on from there. He's a great God. We don't need to be theologically perfect to begin to experience his activity in our lives. Let's pray uh, together. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you that the story of Jacob is a story of hope. Not only for those of us who've blown it big time, but for all of us, for we acknowledge we are all failures. Failures who nevertheless have begun to grasp that God is accessible to us in Christ Jesus, a God who reveals himself in such a tailor-made fashion to us through his word. Enable us to respond to the word read and preached today, to acknowledge the greatness of God that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us. Make this a memorable day, a day that we put a marker down that says this has been a turning point in our lives, a day when the transformation of grace took place. Make it a day of commitment, we pray, our Father, as we learn what it means to submit to your rule and your authority in our lives. To this end, take your word and seal it and cause our hearts to burn within us as we ponder all that you are able to do in lives even like ours. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. 
if you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.